Hello, I'm Jensen Buehler. And I'm Quentin Molson. And together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast. The Two Enthusiast Podcast. Your Yule log of motorcycling fun. <laughs> your Yule log of motorcycle fun. That sounds better. Yule log of motorcycle fun. The Yule log of motorcycle fun. I don't know, man. I think we're more like a, what is one of those cakes? Uh, like a birthday cake? No. Fruit, Ice cream cake? Fruit cake. Fruit cake? More fruit cakes. Where are the fruit cake? Of? What's the jello thing called? So just a jello cake? I, I don't know. I'm sure there's a, a term you know what for, I'm talking about though that, that goes in like a bunt style yeah, thing yeah. and then you get the the mold and then right yeah I don't know it just jiggles when you wiggle it's gr- it's green usually right yeah there's nothing good about that <laughs> it's just I like to jiggle when you wiggle though I'm a big fan yeah 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 you know you got a a particular taste man I'll I'll, I'll eat a lot of that so I'll jiggle when I wiggle <laughs> now let's talk about some bikes okay I got nothing what do you got <laughs> Bikes and bikes and bikes. Uh, we've got a lot. Um, and, uh, depends on where you want to start. Do you want to start with uh, the bike that we were talking about earlier? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Quentin, let's talk about the TVS Apache 310. No, TVS Apache RR310S. Oh, they went through the full BMW they, nomenclature, they, didn't they? That, that's the preferred nomenclature, dude. <laughs> they were like... Well, we like BMW, but we think Aprilia has good style. So yeah, they we're say imitation the, is the highest form of flattery. So let's make sure there's a couple R's as homage to the BMW, and then let's make a bunch of other. Yeah. So so while we're making the BMW joke, it's because this bike is an Indian market bike, but it is going to share heavily with the BMW what will probably be called the G310RR. It'll be their 300cc-ish sport bike. You say what will probably be. I thought this was an in-production thing. I thought this was already on the in, no, in show no, no, no. force. So the, there is the G310R, which is the naked street bike. Okay. There's the G310GS, which is the adventure touring bike. And then we've been talking about this RR model for a long time. And now. And just, that's, and that's one of the things that, it's coming out. So the story is that uh, in about actually, Quentin, I haven't even looked. We're right around the time when this bike should be launching in India. Uh, so it'll be basically as we're talking, this bike will be officially debuting. Ah, okay. But it's about a year late. And the BMW model is a model that we were expecting to see at EICMA this year and didn't. So this is BMW building out or flushing out its small displacement, single cylinder uh, model lineup. And they've had a lot of issues in getting it come to market. And, and what I've been hearing is they've had a lot of issues with the motor reliability. Hmm. So they keep showing these bikes. And they don't really end up in the consumer marketplace. I think BMW did a launch for the 310R, but then never never really came to market. It certainly hasn't really come to market in the U.S. And then the GS bike, no one's, no one's seen it. So I think that's very interesting. So the fact that... We're seeing TVS, which is the Indian partner that BMW has been partnering with. And TVS makes a lot of, I think they make a lot, they've been making gearboxes for BMW for a long time huh. for, for Western market, not just Eastern market, sure, use, sure. Western market use, um, just about any, I want to say like any of the F bikes, any of the K bikes, I want to say those gearbox, those transmissions came from, from TVS. 
Hmm. That would be interesting to know. Is it just the gear sets or do they make complete assembly? Obviously, most of the engines we're talking about are assembled with, you know, the, the gear, the gearbox is part of the engine, right? So right. The, it's not like we're talking All about separate, yeah. whereas in a car world or BMW, um, our bike world, they could, because for the longest time it was a, a separation of the transmission and the, and the engine. But I, I can't imagine that on most of the other um, machines, maybe it would just be gear sets and clutches or, you know, I don't know, whatever. Bottom line is they had the chops to be able to make something fairly high level, which is transmissions. Obviously, I had somebody there that was an enthusiast that said, hey, we should make complete bikes. Right. Well, TVS is the fourth largest motorcycle manufacturer in India. So they're, they're no small time potatoes. Okay, so not only do they make transmissions for BMW, they already make motorcycles. Right. But just... Probably we, ju- we just don't see them because we're stuck here in our own little like Western market silo. Yeah. And but we're talking we're not talking about heavy duty motorcycles. We're talking no. about small displacement, correct for the masses bikes. So BMW's arrangement with TVS is very similar to like KTM's Bajaj. with, with Bajaj yeah. or um, what EBR was doing with Hero or um, now actually we're seeing Triumph getting in bed with Bajaj as well, which is which is interesting. So we're seeing these Western brands getting involved with Indian brands. And it makes a lot of sense, especially for these small displacement machines where price point or the price point critical. Yeah. Because the Indian manufacturing, they're just capable of hitting that price point in ways that the Western manufacturers just can't do. Um, so this bike, the Apache used to be called the Akula and it's, you know, it's taken us a year to get here. Looks awesome in race trim form. They, they showed, um, like a concept, I think it was like six or nine months ago of it in with just bare bones bodywork and a can. I think I was showing it to you before the show. I mean, it yeah. just looks. It does I, look I, pretty I, trick. All I put that considered. in my garage, right? Yeah, it's very strange that it looks that good, but I guess all bets are off until you see it in person. You see it, yeah. But it is very similar to the KTM 390, whatever the sport bike is, right? Well, that's the thing, right? So. It's been interesting to watch over the last, let's call it three years or so, how the 250cc market has metamorphosized into 300cc and now almost 400cc. Yeah. And KTM, I think, is part of that to blame because the the 390 Duke is off the top of my head like 378ccs or something like that. It's yeah. almost 400. Yeah. Uh, but it's then, a single. But it's a single. And the Honda was the last 250 that was really a 250. Yamaha had a 250. Supermoto bike. Honda had the CBR 250 single, but right. then Honda blasted out with the a 300 twin, twin, right? Parallel twin, and the 500 twin, right? And then Kawasaki went up from 250 twin to uh, 300 twin, and now is going 400 twin. Suzuki doesn't really have a. Well, we should we should specify the three the CBR three hundred R is yeah. a single cylinder. Okay. The CBR three hundred RR is the twin cylinder, and we don't have that in the U.S. right now. Okay, so the CBR three hundred is just an iterative change on the CBR two fifty. It's probably the same thing. Is that right? Right. Right. They, Got it. They, they just grew it. They they came out with a CBR two fifty R. And that was right. And then Kawasaki came out with their new Ninja 300. Yeah. 
And Hondo's like, oh. They raised the poop. game. No, so like, we'll okay, go we got to do this. But then we got to remember that none of these things are apples to apples because a, a two cylinder 300 is going to be a significantly better engine. Well, I just say better, different use case of an engine than a single cylinder. So the KTM has this 390, but it's a single. And I can't say that these things are known for being the most reliable yet. I've seen multiple KTM shops with those engine ectomy is going on. I don't know what fails on them. I don't know much about them. I know the racers that race them pop them all the time, but that's a given. That's going to happen every time you're racing. The, the question is, is, is this what's happening with BMW? Are these, you know, a single cylinder, even if you have a good balance shaft or whatever, it's just a stressed engine. You know, you ride any dirt bike. You're, you're ask, yeah, you're asking a lot for it. And, and they're not balanced at all. You have to use all kinds of counterbalancers to make them balance <clears throat> in any way, shape, or form. Adds weight, adds complexity. And if you want them to go, you got to spin them. And anytime you're spinning them, you're stressing them. And that's, you know, the game, name of the game. And in a dirt bike, you're just brap, constant brap, zip, zip, and you're you're not sustained high RPM. Right. Then it's not as bad. And that's why you'll you'll see the use case of a single. It's actually quite good with um, with dirt bike style bikes, whether it be MX or Enduro. A single cylinder is not bad. But as soon as you start creeping into the long distance, then it, and it becomes a problem. And I, the only one that I've seen that's been, you know, bucked that trend has been the KTM 690 series. Seems to be pretty reliable considering the sheer size of that big hunk of hunk of burning love of a motor. Well, and consider too, they just revised that motor, that motor with a, a balancing shaft and you sure. know, had to make a they lot had of to. improvements to... They had to, yeah. yeah. And, you, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, you're forgetting the Kawasaki, uh, whatever the single cylinder KLR. Well, no, I'm not. I'm just not going to count that because that's such a lowly stressed motor from what the mid early '80s. That's just continued on and on and on for decades. I can't really. Of course, it's not going to be. Um, uh, it's not going to be a major problem because it's not highly stressed. So, with the 690, I mean, that thing makes power. That's an impressive engine, and it seems to be solid. So, we've got some guys in our local racing series here at Omra that just plunked down a fair amount of cash to get those Kramer bikes. Have you seen those? Mm-mm. Oh, this is a oh, yeah. tuner I, out of Germany or Austria. I yeah. can't remember. But they're they're taking the 690 Duke motor and building a bespoke road, road racing race, chassis yeah. out of it. Yeah. And I want to say like, I want to say the weight is sub 300. Sure. It and, better be. and it makes, you know, it's making the same. I don't think they're doing really anything to the motor other than putting an exhaust on it. So it's making pretty decent power. But I guess in the way the OMRA rules work, it fits in pretty well in a number of classes. And they Neat. look Neat. look super cool. I think I saw one of the guys from Cycle World or Motorcyclist. Was it Ari that had one of those somewhere? I don't think so. I don't. Okay. It would be interesting to see if. Um, if there was a, if there's been a project bike built, cause I swear I've seen that project. Are you sure you're not thinking of the FZ07 race bike thing? No, it was okay. definitely a single. It was a weirdo one for sure. could have been an old super single. Cause for the longest time, 10 years ago, there was a, a group of people trying to do super singles, which is basically taking uh dirt bike four fifties, putting like R6 or equivalent front ends on them and bodywork yeah and making them race bikes and I, i've talked about it on a previous podcast i know i had a really good experience with one surprised the shit out of me because it was actually quite good considering 
Um, so I could see it happening. I absolutely, I can understand that. But back to where we started with this is this, this bike is going to be built in India. And you're saying that it's, it's kind of showing us what may be coming from BMW once they get their shit together. Right. Right. So I would expect we're going to see this bike come out probably before this podcast even drops. Um, and then that really sets up BMW to come out with its own version. And I don't know if that means we're going to wait a year. Uh, until Intermont or Eichma, yeah, you know, late fall, early fall next year, or if it's something we see like as a midsummer, sure, twenty nineteen release, you know, six six to nine months out from now, uh, it's hard to say. I don't know. I don't know quite what's going on behind the scenes at BMW, but judging from the fact that we really haven't seen them roll out the three ten R, we haven't seen them roll out the three ten GS at all. For them to plop this down on us it's like well guys you got to get the other two bikes out first so i i really do think we're gonna see this bike in about a year in its bmw form hmm. but you know like the the tvs version of it looks hot i like it i'm all about it my biggest concern is you're late to the game the 300 cc displacement thing is 400 cc's now. well they're, they're not going to sell this thing in u.s under this name, but they'll sell they? the bmw version in the u.s wow and then that's all about price point then right right you own a BMW, they could probably charge a few hundred dollars more than the Japanese, but it makes you wonder, are they going to, is it going to be a thousand dollars more than the rest of them? And are they going to be able to do that? I don't know. It's hard to say. The one smart thing that I did see was that Kawasaki priced the Ninja 400. Same. Exactly the same no, of as course, a 300. Dude, they're very smart. And they're killing very it. Very smart. Right? They have to though, right? They're being super defensive about that position. I think they, they've owned that position for a long time, yeah. but quietly. And now that it's heated up and now that the industry is slowly waking up to the idea that we need to put more of an emphasis on newer riders, that's becoming a, a very much a, a target spot for, for new motorcycles. And I think Kawasaki's like, nope, nope, this is ours. We, we've been owning this for the last decade. We're going to own it for the next decade. I looked at the pictures, I believe, that you posted. And ironically, I think that, you know, I always complain about the picture. If I, if I go to one of your articles and I click on the picture, I expect to go to the article, but it just takes me to a bigger blown up picture. You know, I, I've got the beta site now. Master that, that, that's out, and, and that's something that fixes. I'll oh, show it to you after so the show. Good. Well, did, didn't you? You already sent me that. I checked it out. It was did good. I? Okay. Yeah. I've been working on it a lot lately. I bet, as you're going to have to, because you are a master beta site guy. You're really stretching on that one. <laughs> you're really just. I hope you got. I hope you limbered up before the show because you're really <laughs> stretching on that one. Uh, all right. So. I go to your. See, I have to take it tonight because he bought he bought dinner. <laughs> Normally, you I have can to be take what your puns uh, and your horrible what, sense of humor. That's as far as it goes. That's <laughs> all you have to take. Uh, so I click on the. I think the one that you posted the picture was of the bike naked, uh, and that was like the lead picture of the four hundred. Oh yeah. Yeah, and yeah. so I was, I actually went down through the article first looking for that picture so I could blow it up and I had to go back up. I'm like, oh, the irony is I actually have to click on your photo so I can get it bigger. Cause I was looking at it. That looks like a really interestingly developed chassis, tube frame, you know, trellis tube frame. And it looks, I can't tell. And I want to dig into it a little bit further that it doesn't communicate between the frame and the swing arm pivot. And I want to know, does it, does the frame get in? We'll have to look at some. Uh, better pictures at some point. I, then I squirreled off on something else and I didn't continue to look it up. But the question is, is are those stressed member cases and is it like a Ducati 
where the tube frame only goes to the top and then all does all that bracketry that holds the swing arm pivot in the in the foot pegs does that just bolt to the engine yeah, I'm that, looking at if, it. I'm looking at it right so, now. It's really hard to tell. It's t- it's difficult, but I yeah. tell you what, they they managed to keep that thing. What is it? How much lighter is it? Oh, it's like thirty pounds lighter. It's thirty pounds lighter. I guarantee that that's probably a part of of why that bike is so light. They were able to take three seventy at the curb. That's pretty that's good. That's not bad. Sure. So that's what I'm saying is that you you do that a few different ways. One of them would be eliminating large parts of the chassis. And anyway, I'm. I'm very curious about that bike, and I, I like it, and I'm I'm stoked by it. So the space is, the space is deep, and I maybe this will help us get motorcyclists into motorcycling again, especially in the sport bikes. Maybe this will be the thing of the next five, ten years. You know? Yeah, I'm not convinced that sport bikes are dead. I was just talking to to someone the other day about that, and you know, I need to dig in. I'm trying to find like the the hard numbers to really look at the trends. I feel like sport bikes as a segment aren't dead. I just feel like it's been so, so, so much of a neglected segment that the sales wane. So I agree. And I think it's a fad situation. There's economy is one part, but there's a fad part of sport bikes because the cafe racer hipster, what, what went from hipster to then being mainstream was the cool naked, you know, bike over the course of the past 10 years and that eventually will wane and then people realize oh i i think that looks cool again and then they'll get back into it and the younger folk i'm not saying it's going to be like when i was into it in the early 90s mid 90s i don't see that happening again or even in the the early 80s but i think it'll come back a little bit and i i I think what we're seeing is a it's going to be a little bit painful before we get back into full full sports bike love that and we're going to need to see a race series that's a little bit more um, intriguing or interesting to younger riders because right now that's not a whole lot. I think they're preaching to a choir of existing, you know, older, you know, baby boomer and um, and Gen Xers like myself that got to see it when it was still rad and kind of cling to it like, oh, I'd really like to continue to watch road racing in the U.S., but not not really compelling reasons to do so. But I posted on the on the Facebook page a couple times um, about the class, the twins class that they have boiling twins, right yeah. now. And I, and we probably have talked about it, but that's the, the more that's going, the more like fervor that's being built a, around that. I, I like it. I don't, I think it's going to take a lot of rules changes to get it right, but I'm excited by it. Cause it plays into this crowd of, of weirdo bikes, interesting bikes, different bikes, twins, yeah. right? That's a motorcyclist, motorcycle racing class, though. Like the the twins class, I think it's gonna be interesting, but it's a total tuner class. Like that's yeah. that's a yeah. class that's gonna get people that are already race fans excited and, and interested. In like, oh, that's weird. Let's oh, what would they do to modify that to make it do sure. the thing? Sure. In terms of getting new riders, I mean, Moto America has the three ninety cup, the RC three ninety cup, and that kind of works and then superbike has the what they're calling the super sport 300 class which has like its own challenges of balancing the different 300 to 400 cc you're talking about a uh, world superbike right yeah right um so they're they're trying to balance that out there i think the hardest part is there hasn't really been a consensus among the manufacturers on what they're going to do in the space to get new riders involved single cylinder parallel twins maybe see we see a v twin i don't know yeah. probably not but no. a, 
you know, truthfully, this is where electrics start coming into the fray a little bit. So it, you know, it's going to flush itself out. It's going to take a few years to, to get it figured out. I'm excited to see bikes like the TVS in there. I think that's going to mix it up a little bit. Um, I think we're going to see some interesting things from, uh, KTM as they kind of answer how the market has changed. Cause you gotta remember, like they were one of the first to kind of strike into the space. Yeah, sure. And I think they've had a hard time with the balancing of like, you look at something like the RC 390 cup and you're like, well, the RC 390 doesn't really lend itself to being a great track bike. You know, the, the trellis frame goes it's all one piece all the way up to the subframes like you crash you're going to bend the frame and then you just told your bike basically there's a lot of problems with that thing as a race platform right. i get it and i think that's that's the thing where you're like you're trying to do like the racy thing and you're trying to do like the beginner entry level thing and i think there's too much of divergence on what a bike needs to be to be good in both those kind of classes and i think we're going to see a split in in that development that's price point though as soon as they had to start doing that with the 600s back in the late 90s remember my f2 had a steel frame that mimicked an aluminum frame that you'd find in say an rc30 but remember this is like 1991 too the the honda 600 was just developing all the 600s were developing at that time yeah so it was a steel frame and it had a steel subframe that was a weldment to the frame and if you tweaked one you were going to get out the two by fours and pipes and you were going to bend it back uh after you crashed it and that was a that was a a very common thing back in that day and i don't remember when the first gsxrs started getting made uh with replaceable subframes but that was definitely something that started in the 90s and then that i think the f4i might have been the first Honda that had the, the subframe that, right. that was yeah. things like that that started to look a little bit more like okay how do we deal with these bikes once they're crashed how how do they how do they crash and is it easy to deal with to the point where now we get bikes that come as shipped with these plastic engine case saver side cover savers and things like that which is interesting to see I'm stoked to see that over the course of the years because otherwise you'd had to put a bunch of money into those frame saver things that end up being bike catapults, you know, the ones that stick out the sides of the bike. And as soon as it gets on the pavement, you're okay. But then if it goes off pavement, then it flips your bike upside down 20 times and does 10 times more damage than what it would have had. Right. right. So we're started, we're seeing that now. And what bring you bringing that up is a, I never really had thought about it. I'd seen them in race trim at an Omer a bunch uh, when I was doing the tech inspecting thing. They all looked like they're pretty well sorted. Not not completely. I mean, there's stuff on them that I would want to change, but I would imagine most of the people that race them in AMA have them tightened up pretty well. And um, that's just what it takes with everyone. So I don't think that's that big of a deal. You just, it'll, it'll, the cream will rise to the top. So if there's a class where that fits in, where, where the BMW race bike fits in, where the Yamaha and the Honda and all that kind of start to fit into, uh, it'll, it'll get better. And I, you know, the 390 Cup, it makes sense for KTM because they're like, hey, we want to be the only show. The KTM's everywhere. We've been involved with AMA Road Racing or Moto America Road Racing now for a long time. I can see where they want to keep that in there. They must see some sort of return on investment, right? Because they had um, uh, Chris Fillmore racing the RC8 when it was still a viable or sellable thing for a while. And even though it basically licked balls at the back, um, it was 
It wasn't that bad. I shouldn't say it was he wasn't that extreme. Bad, but he was but definitely like he was he was fighting for top tens, not podiums. Not not often. I mean, I'm sure he must have gotten on the podium, but it must have been rare if he did. You know, and, and he's a haul asser, and he was making that bike go yeah. right. It wasn't him. So with KTM's investment in that, and then having HMC um, involved, uh, yeah, I can I can imagine they want to continue with that because they need to sell road bikes and they want to have that blend towards road bikes as well as their dirt bikes and it's right. been hard for them well and i think i think we've talked about it on the show before but i mean ktm north america needs to get serious about selling street bikes in the u.s just straight up like we're one of the largest markets for them for their for their lineup of of street bikes and we don't sell nearly as many as as we should no not when by you, long when shot you look, when you look at the numbers like we're not even i don't even think we're the second largest market for them. i think we're like the third or fourth and their marketing shows i mean that's it's kind of obvious you got that type of thing where they're like oh go racing because that's been their tagline for years now ready to race or yeah. race ready or something ready like race, that yeah. so they do that and that makes sense but then they don't also back that up with you know properly getting the bikes out into the space i mean the you you've never ridden one for ktm as a as a never been to, never right? been to a press launch right. never been to a press event for ktm so, so that that speaks very loudly to me that there somebody there is clueless or there's a group of people that are clueless um either that or willful willfully ignorant like, like or they're just so focused on dirt because look at what they've done multiple championships dungey just wrapped up and 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 pieced out and dropped the mic KTM makes great dirt bikes. There's nobody, there's no equivocation on that. And there's nobody that's going to tell us that that's not the case. Right. They've got a lot of market share. They've been beating they, they the shit. own the two-stroke space and they're sure. very dominant in the four-stroke space. Yep. And they're, you can't, you can't refute it. And they're expensive. They're not a, a cheap to run thing. And they used to be a joke. You know, Kick Till Monday used to be the, seriously a joke. And only weirdos uh, rode those bikes 15, 20 years ago. Now, they're, I wouldn't call it a ubiquitous, but you you have to be smart to go look at any one of their lineup before you buy any other dirt bike. So if that's the thing that they can do in that space, then they need to start blending that into... I mean, they have a MotoGP bike that can finish top 10, right? Yeah, the MotoGP program is no joke. And and those bikes I think they, are They nasty. surprised a lot of people this season. I think everyone knew they were going to be good, and I think everyone knew like just by how much resource and time and people were being thrown into that program that it was going to it had a it had a high yeah elevation that it could achieve but the pace they did it at i think is what they surprised a lot of people with so cross fingers hopefully they get to the point where they can get up to podium level it's well, tough man like, there's there's already talk of like they're making overtures to marquez they're making overtures to no oh, that's a big deal to zarco sure and they're looking for a top level rider now to take their program because i think they're feeling like hey like our bike it's probably like a year or two away from being, you know, championship contender. Huh. We need to get someone on board. We need to get someone who's a little bit faster so we can take it to the next level so it can be a, a contender. And that, I know, would start feeding into the selling on Monday style motorcycle level of if they could get a crotch rocket well, that's in the their thing, lineup. Right? They need to get a, a, a super bike. They need to get a super sport in that lineup. I don't know how you can be the ready to race brand and not have like the quintessential street racing bikes in your lineup. That just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, we should right. talk to we should talk to someone about that. We should. We should. I wonder if there's anybody we know yeah. that that could that could relay that to them. Yeah, we'll figure it out. I'll we'll have to look through my uh, my Rolodex. Okay. I will say this: the brand that brings out a high performance V4 600. That's I, I'm buying a 600. I I would agree with you that. I've I've been saying this for years after having spent so much time around NC30s and NC35s 
15 years ago, 400 cc V4, amazing little creatures. And you know how much I love the Honda RC30. So I would always say, why don't they just do that? But cost is cost, man. It's really expensive to make those engines work. I get it. I get it. And, but, and, and it doesn't trick. cost any more money from, from a manufacturing side. Doesn't Making a 600 isn't any less expensive than making a 1,000. Not at all. But the price point in the market three to five thousand dollars difference at least so you're losing that's just like all butter that you're losing yeah but like that's the same thing i told claudio where he's like because he was saying like oh well you know if we made our v4 and a 600 it would just be too expensive it would have to cost eighteen twenty thousand dollars so like yeah okay then charge me that <laughs> and you'd be into that because i would be into it because that'd be like a what 320 pound bike at the curb maybe i mean i don't know what it would weigh but it'd be we I don't think it'd, it'd be, be that light. Less. I don't think they could make it that light without making well, it twenty five thousand dollars. But should. yeah, but that would be the thing. But that would be the thing. We're like, if it was priced <laughs> like, like tr- honestly, if like it was priced the same as the one thousand cc counterpart, but revved to like twenty thousand RPMs and was just like this special thing, I would be like, yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested in that. Even if I owned like the thousand cc version, I'd be interested in that because that would be that different thing. It's just like the same yeah. thing of like, I would get excited if like Aprilia came back with that. 550 V twin motor and put that yeah. into a, a sport that, bike chassis. That was or, developed to where it wouldn't blow up every time you ran. Well, it. yeah, but I mean, yeah. that's, that's always right. Like, anytime you're talking about an Aprilia motorcycle, it's with the, the caveat of that. It would be reliable and <laughs> not blow up in my face. Oh, well, and that's uh, it's but sad, that's, but that's a deal. Those motors were sweet little units. They're yeah, very those cool, were, very interesting, neat to listen to everything about them, but they were known for being a little trouble, a um, little bit of trouble, right? I was about to say troublematic. I like that. Troublematic. Instead of problematic, it's troublematic. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so I, I'm with you on that. And I think I think that would be remarkable if somebody did it. But I, and again, that for me, it brings up yet another point of the, the, this in-between 1,000 and 600 class. The 750, right? The, the 750 class that Which is like the classic track bike class. And it's so perfect. And, and nobody really has... You know, you got GSXR 750. They've continued to make it, and as they should, because it's it probably is the best all round sport bike that's made. But I want something that's more interesting and and you know more engaging. And if I'm gonna go to get a 959, eh, well, no. the 959 is for me. It was always a little too close to a leader bike, but the 899 made more sense to me. And then when, like you look at the um, F3 800 from MV Augusta. Again, a bike that I would love to put in my garage the second I find a crashed one. That's what I'm doing. That's going to be my little track bike. Um, that kind of, yeah, that makes sense to me. And the Jixxer 750s in there. I mean, Kawasaki's always been doing like weird things with the 636, but that that doesn't make any sense to me because it's just it's just too close to being the 600, but like, oh, we just gave it a little bit extra so it would do a little bit better. In the, Bottom line, we could talk about this ad infinitum, but yeah. it's, it's that there is a missing link there. And if KTM was super rad they'd figure out a way to put that 790 motor in a full-on crotch rocket like full-on sport bike right and and okay you're there's your platform don't have to do anything parallel twin okay i hate them but you know what i, I have a feeling that one's pretty rad make a sport bike make it happen make a bitchin sport bike that looks like your motor gp bike that's skinny and light and fucking fast and I, i'd be all about it i'm all about the bike as it is even though it looks a little bit contrived compared to the 
the uh, uh, prototype bike that they had. But of course it's going to be. It's got to be street legal in the U.S. And it sucks, right? Euro 5, it's got to be, it's going to have a big exhaust canister, whatever, whatever. I'm not bothered by that. We can make, we can change that. The things can be modified. But if they made a sport bike, they could do a good job. I'm sure of it. I think that's the good entry point for them. It, it doesn't quite satiate my like, oh, ready to race lane. Be like, well, what, what racing class? Were you taking an 800cc parallel twin in? I don't even know off the top of my head what class it would be competitive in. It doesn't fit that like 600cc well, super sport, 1000cc right superbike. This, this new uh, uh, AMA. Well, or sorry, the, the Moto America Twins class. It would right. be it would be perfect for. It. And and you would notice that the KTM 6790 Duke is race homologated for that class, even though it won't be available in the U.S. that year. <laughs> I didn't see that. No, you didn't. That doesn't surprise me. Doesn't though. surprise me. Right? It's ready to race. Right, it's ready to race before anything. It's ready to race, but that would be cool. To market. If that would that would be super rad if somebody could get their hands on one of those things early, and that's not you know that's get, not hard. Get it on, in on a carne and just okay. So it's not going to live here. It's not going to be sold here. But race them. And if KTM was smart, they'd do that. They'd get somebody. They'd have Mitch Hansen or whoever get on that now. Oh man, that would or, be super. Or yeah, or get, yeah, get Chris Fillmore as a rider and sure brand that shit up. Or be like, hey, two enthusiast podcast race team needs to go, right? <laughs> Let's do some development work at Omer. <laughs> I'd be down. I'd be totally down with that. <laughs> That'd be super rad. All right, we digress. Uh, right, but we're talking about racing, so I'd like to bring up another thing about racing. Are you where are you at? I can get racy with you. All right, so let's let's talk about this very interesting uh, thing where Jonathan Ray, good old Johnny Ray, who is apparently a listener of the podcast, or is he a reader of Asphalt and Rubber? He's a fan. Let's just say he's a fan. He's, he's a, a friend. Fan. He's a friend of the show. Okay, well, that, which is rad. And I I used to hack on him a lot, and I think I've talked about this on the show before, where I've been like, all right, I didn't like Johnny Ray because he crashed out a couple people, but he was riding some nasty equipment for a long time he's overriding the fuck out of that yeah, that Honda. i think i had to correct your your errant ways i know and i and i feel i feel now that i've come back obviously i mean it's hard you feel weird because like okay he's an overdog now he's won what three championships three in a, in a row in a row which is kind of unprecedented kawasaki not, not kind of unprecedented unprecedented is it there's nobody else not or three in a row yeah so that's an impressive thing I got to say, though, when Colin Edwards won in 2000 and 2002, you know, it's a similar level of, holy shit, this is good, high level beating Ducati oh, yeah. at the time. So I want to, it's not, I mean, it's extreme, but right now there's nobody playing in the, in the World Superbike. Yamaha isn't really in it. Ducati is obviously in it. Suzuki's not really in it. All right. Not saying I'm not taking this away from Johnny Ray because Johnny Ray just posted up like the fourth fastest time at a test where there was shared MotoGP and World Superbike. And that's right. for the, the point of where this is where I was going with this. It's like, okay, why isn't Johnny Ray on a MotoGP bike? And how is it that a Kawasaki Superbike is as fast as a lot of MotoGP machines? And uh, our colleague, David Emmett, your colleague, David Emmett, I won't put, I'm not in that, in that realm. Um, just wrote an interesting article yep. about it. And so did Matt Oxley. Uh, both were like, hey, there's there's this boiling uh, that's happening. And I think we talked about a little bit on uh, last show right. of, with my, Matt Oxley. But Dave Emmett came at, at it with a little bit of a different uh, view and a little bit in more in depth. Yeah, David's really good. So David runs the, the Motor, Moto Matters website. If you don't read that, you should. We republish some of his work on Asphalt and Rubber because it's just that good. He's also... Um, a part of the Paddock Pass podcast, which I pr uh, produce. So Say definitely five times fast. Paddock, Paddock, Paddock Pass podcast. Paddock, 
Paddock Pass. It's, it's tough. You produce the Paddock Pass podcast. I, I, yeah, that's just mean. But um, easily one of the most well-regarded MotoGP uh, reporters in the biz and definitely is a huge part of um, making online journalism in the MotoGP paddock uh, getting taken seriously. Yep. And so he had a few a few points. So yeah, he's really good at, at breaking things down from a data analysis point of view. For sure. So that's what he did in this story uh, published this week. And he basically looked at Johnny Ray's lap times throughout the week. Um various MotoGP riders, other world superbike riders, and, you know, was kind of, I wouldn't say debunking some things, but it was at least bringing some truth to light. Whereas if you were just looking at the timesheets, maybe you wouldn't realize what was going on. So if you, not even the timesheets, if you just looked at the final times, right? So the final times are set on qualifying tires by Johnny Ray, whereas the, the final times for the MotoGP riders are development laps more than they're not trying to win practice here they're not posturing even really everybody wants to be fastest in practice no matter what so that you understand like is this person putting in flying laps to get a time yes they were and what would their time be relative to the corresponding times of the MotoGP riders oh they would be more like 12th so number one you're putting johnny ray a little bit further vaulted up than than he would be uh, but he's still as fast as a right. So, like the top three GP riders were Iannone, Paul Spargaro, and Cal Crutchlow. Got it. Which should again tell you that if those are the three fastest, those are the three. I mean, truthfully, those are the three brands that need to do the most R and D, and those are the three guys responsible for doing the R and D within those teams. And they're all very hungry and need to show that they're capable. Right. So you're not seeing Rossi Marquez. Uh, Davizioso at the top because you know th- this isn't I'm not saying it's not a real test but you're not getting anybody out there trying to win practice so that, that doesn't debunk anything and it doesn't say Johnny Ray's slow it's just saying that bike isn't that fast and then the other part of it what I thought was interesting was him bringing up I mean the tires are a given for me that's the biggest single factor if you're going to yeah. take a slice of the pie that's going to go from one o'clock to eleven o'clock on on how big of a factor it is. They're on Michelin's and the the World Superbikes are on Pirelli's, completely different. And and the, a lot of the these faster times are set on qualifying tires. Yeah, it's tough to it's tough to call that apples to apples. And that's one of the criticisms is that the, of the GP tires tire similar when yeah. it gets cold. You know, the performance stops dropping off a lot more than say when like the Bridgestones were out and the Bridgestones would then have a little bit bigger of a window to be able to operate. The Bridgestones had a bigger window. You just had to keep the heat in, and it was just more important to keep the heat in them for them to operate properly. Huh. If that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Um, and yeah. so that in this test, people are riding around, it's a little chillier than normal. Right. So they're saying the Michelins were a little bit off, whereas the Prellies were going to be, they were just fine. And understand too, that Superbike and MotoGP go to Hareth at very different times of the year. Yeah. So the setups that they're working with are different. You know, sure. one's a colder setup, the one's a warmer setup, and then the asphalt there is is really old and it does weird things as the temperature changes. Still, I I'll say out of all that, uh, what I would like to see, and I agreed with somebody was saying, you know, well then what you should do is throw a set of carbon discs and the correct wheel sizes and tires on that Kawasaki and see what it will do. It would be very interesting to see. And David's. I think basically saying, well, the chassis would have to cope with that. And it probably would be almost unsafe to ride them in the, with, with, uh, 
with a chassis that that's not re- prepared for the braking moments that they would uh and I don't I don't know. I don't know if that's the case or it just would just wouldn't work and be slower. I mean it, it's one it's just never going to happen. Two like I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but you are talking about a chassis that has to work on a street. So therefore it is kind of compromised yeah. compared to a chassis that is built to do purely race. the one yeah. thing with these tires with these certain yeah. brakes. So like one's way more specialized for the task than the other, even though the superbike teams get to fiddle around a bit with sure. with their parts and their components, but you're still kind of hampered by that homologation rule. So it's for me, it's never an apples to apples comparison. And I think that's kind of the crux that Dave was trying to get to. It's like, you know, we're trying to like divine through the tea leaves here, but understanding that it's never apples to apples. Like it would have to be them all gritting up on a race weekend period on the same tires. Right. It would have to be. That would be the only way to do it, and you're never going to see it. But it's an interesting uh, mental exercise, I'll say, to think about. Like, what what are the differences, and and how could it be that these even close? Well, it's still power to weight ratio is still pretty high on a superbike and a G- MotoGP bike, and and a lot of that top end of the MotoGP bikes isn't necessarily useful on a lot of tracks. You're just dealing with electronics packages that make them tameable. And the same goes for a, a 220 horsepower Kawasaki that's ZX-10. The thing, right? That's the thing, right? Like that, that super bike has got to be making 220, 230 at the rear wheel. Whereas the GP bikes are making probably closer to 250, 270. But there is an element of that where it's like, well, but how much of that is being used sure. and when and where? So like, I think the production bikes have caught up a lot with the GP class bikes. And, um, and we're not doing zero to hundred to zero tests on this. We're going around a racetrack where their the momentum is and and momentum and corner speed and all that stuff. You're you can you get to the point where a lot of these Moto two bikes a lot of times aren't that far off from even a Moto GP. Yeah, they're far. They might be five six seconds, but that's not a lot. It's amazing how fast they are. Right, all right. of them. Right, even with a hundred and twenty horsepower limited engine, literally right? half the horsepower. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. Half the horsepower does not mean half Half the the time yeah so uh, interesting stuff uh i'm actually really curious to see what's going to happen in the superbike class um and one of the reasons for that quentin was a piece of news that came out this morning that the um superbike commission the kind of like governing rules party for the world superbike championship is going to allow the use of winglets (laughs) Which is so weird to see. Okay, and it's not they're they're all owned by Dorna, right? Right. So Dorna or who who was the one that said no winglets in MotoGP? Is it Dorna? Well, or is it the no? So the the issue really came about because HRC and Mark Marquez sure. and they were like, well, but who's, safety, who made the rule? Who Dorna? Dorna so it is Dorna. Dorna eventually said like, hey, this is what we're well, now. We're now they're like, well, in the World Superbike. Yeah! Let's see how that goes. Well, yeah, and that'll be the interesting part, right? So the, the 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 full wording of the rule is that winglets will be permitted if they're fitted to the homologation bike. So, so Kawasaki H2R, which has winglets, if it was say in that in that in that vein, those would be homologated for that. Right. There we go. Right. And if Ducati came out with a with a the a street bike that had all that crap the on pan, it. The, Mo- the Panigale V4R, whatever they're going to call that thing, yeah, has winglets on it. Ooh, GP style winglets. It and, would be race legal. And they haven't 
you know, Ducati hasn't shown that bike yet. And they well, that's the thing that gets me excited. Yeah. And, and we've seen like Aprilia with their factory works. Yeah. So starting in 2018, if you buy an Aprilia factory work RSV4, which is basically straight from Aprilia Racing, it's a track only bike, but it's got all the cool Aprilia Racing stuff. Then depending on how much money you want to pay, you can get a super stock, super bike, you can probably all get the way one up to GP. 30,000, 70,000, 150,000, right? I think it's, you know, the 250 horsepower pneumatic valve version was surprisingly affordable. It's like hundred and twenty thousand dollars or something like that. <laughs> you say surprisingly affordable. But you think about it, it's literally their GP bike. Yeah. It's literally like like the CRT level GP bike and it's like a hundred K. Yeah. So just think about that. Like because yeah. like a super legera is like eighty five K and this is just Yeah. Now it's not straight legal, but you know it's a whole other yeah, sure, no whole sure. other jam. I kind of see what you're saying. Yes. I just think you can get the super stock version for like 25, 20, 25 K. Yeah. With the winglets, and I think that's awesome. Yeah. So, but that's one of the things that intrigues me because, you know, I don't have like a good basis for this, but for me, looking at how important winglets were to Ducati in their MotoGP program, and like I was hearing when when Honda and Dorna were like kind of getting rid of the winglet rule, that really upset Ducati because they had a larger plan for this in terms of like it trickling into their street program. So for me, and the fact that we haven't seen the R version, the 1000cc R version of the Panigale V4, in my mind, I'm like, I bet that bike has winglets. I yeah. bet that bike has some sort of aerodynamic something. And that's I hope and that, does. for me, would be the saving grace to the Panigale V4 as like a Ducatista. Because that would be like, okay, now that's the next iteration that I was hoping for. Like, you came out and you basically gave me a Panigale with a better motor in it and called it even. And like, yeah, I'm excited, but... It I looks wa- the same. I wanted more. It looks Blah. the same. Yeah. You missed the moment. But if you come out and be like, okay, here's our R version. It's got it's got the engine derived from MotoGP. It's got the chassis derived from MotoGP. It's got the aerodynamic winglets derived from MotoGP. Boom. Yeah, it could, could be very interesting for sure. And it'll be interesting to see if Honda gets their V4 in uh, production. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, right? Like, uh, I've been, winglets. <laughs> I got to write the story about it, but that's kind of been the chatter out of Japan and, and in Europe is, you know, here we go again. Honda V4, year in a year row. super no, no, bike is, rumors. Sorry, 20 year in a row. Oh, we're going to go back to a V4. 20 years on, yeah. MCN beating the freaking dead horse. Well, this one right? I don't think is actually MCN's fault, but MCN in the past definitely was responsible for a bit of it. But, you know, it, it keeps percolating. There's a lot of smoke there, so there's like there's got to be some fire, but you know we'll see. But it's been interesting to, for me, it's been interesting to see that that's something that Superbike is opening up as we start talking about rev limits in World Superbike, part price or part price capping for parts in World Superbike, and there's a lot of talk about and speculation. As to whether there'll be a spec ECU coming yeah. in. It doesn't look like for 2018 there will be, but 2019 maybe. You know, like Dorna and the Superbike Commission are definitely sitting down and looking at how can we make this not just like, you know, a one manufacturer or a two rider championship? How can we make this an even playing field where on any given Sunday someone can win a race like we've seen in MotoGP over the last couple of years? Yeah. So we're seeing that these kind of rule packages. And these ideas have led to really good racing. So I'm actually pretty hopeful for that, where it's like, well, yeah, you know, maybe three or four manufacturers really can fight for the win if we do this right. In that vein, local team latest 
So Latus is a Harley Davidson dealership, Harley Davidson Triumph dealership. So George Latus has been running an uh, um, and was an AMA team, and then it was a Moto America team up until this year. Uh, they had ran with our good friend Ronnie Sainer, uh, was running Buells, then Ducatis, then Triumphs, and won the Daytona 200 in 2011, I believe. So Ronnie basically won that race with uh, with a, 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 a there was a bit of an asterisk because the there was a red flag and they popped the motor on the red flag lap and they swapped the motor and they still continued when and Jason ended up winning the race. DeSalvo. So they they have a storied level of AMA competition, not factory supported, not not in any way uh, bootstrapped, local Harley Davidson dealership. Uh, they only got Triumph when they were racing Triumph, so it was part of that deal. It was you, a very you say that though, but they've they've got a rich history of racing, a huge huge rich history of, of racing for sure. And he had been racing flat track for a long time. Anyway. They raced this last year with Kawasaki's, maybe two years, but I think it's mainly been just this last year. I can't remember uh, with Bobby Fong, and were on the podium often in in uh, the Moto America Superstock class. But I think they even managed to get on the podium. This in is the Superstock One Thousand. Yep. Okay. And the Superstock uh, Superbike class as well. Like I think he managed to finish third a couple times. And we should preface for our listeners, that's a combined grid. It is. It's a bit of an annoying thing because you're we're they're all thousands, but they were separated by like number plate color, I think was the change, right? So you'd see a bike with a red background number plate up in the, you know, in the third place position. They weren't they were first in their super stock race, but they weren't they were they were third in the super bike. Anyway, very interesting thing that this local bootstrapped team um with some excellent people uh, uh uh that were part of the part of the team working on the bikes for sure robert ward former rich oliver mechanic um sean keen um former all over the place mechanic and anyway good group of people um and george leading the leading the charge and it, what's really strange is it's based out of a harley dealership well they tried, they decided to pull out they uh, they knew that they needed to go to superbike and to get Bobby on a superbike, they f- say that they don't feel that the uh, they can be competitive at the at the um, with the budget they've got with the with the Yamaha and Suzuki. Essentially, I don't know if that's how they worded it, but I just saw that press release come out, and I thought it was really sad because there they were getting on the podium with a super stock bike this year. I don't know what the changes in the rules are. That would, or if there are any changes, but if it got to the point where George was like, mm, I can't afford to do this, maybe they just can't afford to. Maybe the the outlive of uh, outlay of cash over the past year was just too much, and they look at it like I I can't afford to blow another you know half a million dollars or who knows what it is to to do this. Um, that might be it. But in my head, I'm still thinking like he's probably right. In order for him. And for that team to to get a a, a a technology package on the bike that's going to be close enough to get Bobby to nip at the heels of Cameron Bobier and Josh Hayes and, and Tony Elias, he, he's probably looking at a you know maybe a double cost like you go from five hundred grand a year to a, a million a year just to afford the data engineers that can support it and also the equipment that comes with it. I don't know. But and it goes to the point you were talking about with World Superbike going to spec ECU. 
And I know there's a lot of backroom BS and a lot of politics here in the United States when it comes to it, it always has been and always will be. But a spec ECU seems like it makes sense for a lot of these teams at that high level, at the superbike level. And then you got to spend the money somewhere, and that usually ends up meaning that they're gonna the the factories are gonna rise to the top anyway because they're gonna have the money to pay the people to figure out that ECU, much like the MotoGP guys have done, you know. But it worked for MotoGP. It seems pretty. I'm not saying there's parity, but holy crap, does it? I don't think electronics packages are are the differentiation now. It's more chassis and tire. Well, that's the thing, getting used right? to the tires with the chassis. Tires and chassis, but also like aerodynamics has now become a bit a really yeah. big part for development, and that's kind of why I get excited about this rule change. I'm like, okay, like in my mind, we kind of have hit like peak motor and peak chassis kind of development. Yeah, there's revisions. Yeah, we're making more power, but it's like one of those things where not that much. You know, if a superbike comes out with 210 horsepower versus the old ones of 200, it's not going to be that much faster around the track because of just usually how peaky that means the the power yep. band is sure. and just like the reality is like well where are you actually using the power and, and the rev ranges and all that and we built the chassis that handle that power pretty well and the suspension's really good now and electronics are or sorry the suspension's really good and the brakes are really good and we got lightweight wheels so one of the last places to make development is electronics but like we're seeing with the imu is like that's making these electronic packages really good and like that's kind of developing like like if you want to make inroads on development there it costs a lot of money to go from from 1 to 100 let's say whereas like you could take that same amount of money and go from like 1 to 1000 with the aerodynamics package or or um you know make some serious gains I and mean, like what we saw with MotoGP when they went to the spec ECU that took away a lot of the things or maybe not a lot but some of the things that they were doing electronically to manage you know, front wheel lift and front yeah. end stability and all these things that were coming as, as like the detriment of having too much power, you know, they were managing sure. with electronics. Well, now they're like, they were figuring out like, Hey, we can fix some of this with aerodynamics. We can fix some of this with winglets. We don't have the sophistication electronically, electronically anymore, but here's a mechanical solution that gets us like, gets us back like 75%, 80% of where we were. And I think that's what we're kind of seeing about to happen in World Superbike. We're like, okay, winglets are allowed now. And it's interesting that that ruling, which we hadn't really heard about this rule at any previous point in time, and now we hear about it after we've now seen all the 2018 models announced. Yeah. So none of them are going to be able to homologate for this rule, but it gives OEMs almost an entire year now to process that oh, yeah. information change and to develop. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see some 2019 bikes coming out for the street with some sort of winglet built in so that or aerodynamics something or other because let's let's whatever, call whatever, whatever the honda and and yamaha's had this year they weren't very winglety but they were definitely interesting side gill style things that right. could easily be be put into a, a street bike the wording that the superbike commission uses is aerodynamic component e.g winglets so they're saying they're talking about aerodynamics just in general but in general yeah. kind of giving a nod to the winglet so I, yeah i think i think that's going to be the next the next iteration i think that's going to be the next thing that we see on the street bike side becoming a uh 
uh, a point of development and a point of, you know, truthfully like marketing, like, like one of the, like, why do I like an H2R? Why do I want an H2R so badly? When I don't know. Be, well, because it's supercharged and it makes a bajillion horsepower and it's got like this crazy winglet, just lurid design. Where I'm just like, man, that just looks like a fighter jet. I just want to get in that and like go pew, pew, pew. It mm. looks rad. It just looks rad. That's the reason I want it. What do I want? It looks rad. And I think like on a base level, that's like, why we why we buy motorcycles in the first place? Yeah, like, sure. Oh, it looks rad. Same it's with rad. The, same with the sport bikes in general. That's what I'm saying. And that's going back to our earlier conversation about what's in the, what's in fad right now. I, eventually, it'll get back because no matter which way you cut it, sport bikes look cool and they go fast and they're they do neat things and they yeah. but they look cool. It's they the same thing. Like, why am I excited about that TVS Apache? Because it looks rad. Sure. If I, with all the lights and stuff on it, that race bike look rad. Yep. So, never under, underestimate the radness. No. The rad. Horrible movie. Yeah, I'm sorry that you didn't like it. Now you know, though. Now you know. I think it lost me at the BMX dance scene. Send me an angel, man. Such a beautiful song. Oh, my God. Send me an angel. So bad. Uh, All right. So there's that. There's that. Um, Speaking of the industry in general and speaking of press launches and and whatnot, there was a, uh, a recent hubbub on on social media where a, a, a journalist i'm sorry i can't remember their name lance oliver from revzilla yeah okay so he i saw this secondhand where he had basically called out moto journalism isn't journalism and this is coming from a uh, i guess he's a background of being a, a newspaper person or whatever and i thought that was an interesting thing well, we had just talked about how um bad uh, the state of moto journalism is in general and here's another person that's basically calling out, but from a different direction a little bit, and that he's basically saying, you can't say that getting sent to a press introduction and having all that paid for isn't, isn't you know, almost coercive in that, I don't know if that's the right word, but like, it was no, like... I think that's a fair word for it. Is it? You, do you feel that, but you don't feel it's true. I do feel it's true. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot of things about that. So I saw that stories too. Um, and I've talked to a couple of colleagues about it and, you know, it's, it's interesting because Lance's perspective is that he is a classically trained print journalist, I think with credentials going to several newspapers and things like that. And his, his whole premise was what we do in the motorcycle industry isn't journalism because it doesn't fit into what is taught in classical journalism school kind of paradigms which is fair and accurate but i also take a little bit of issue with because like under his definition the only real journalist basically would be like wartime correspondents war reporters investigative journalists white house correspondents and, and of the like and whereas like i think that's like the tip of the spear of the journalism world and like the the journalistic elite i don't think it's fair to call everything below that not journalism it's kind of like the world's just not that black and white but his point that you know it's like this press launch right honda will fly me out on a flight they'll put me up in a hotel room they're gonna feed me they're gonna pay for my gas um and then i'll you know they'll send me home and you know that's that's all bought and paid for by honda and in classic journalism rules, that wouldn't be allowed because it would be coercive. And I think that's absolutely right. Um, that is a form of coercion. 
Now, I would take it a step further, and in my and, and this is my perspective on the whole thing, having a background in psychology, having a degree in psychology, the idea that you can rule out personal bias or you can rule out any form of bias is so naive and wrong that is it's literally an unattainable goal. So that's where I would disagree with an article like that where it's like, well, you know, we're not journalists because our lunch was paid for by someone else. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, okay, yeah, I don't disagree with you, but if you think that by paying for the lunch yourself, you are now immune to any sort of influence, you're grossly mistaken. So my philosophy has always been, I always joke around, like I'm not so much a motorcycle journalist. I call myself a journalist a lot of time. I think that's the easiest way to describe my job. It's tough to say any other way. But I think if you look on my LinkedIn bio, I think I say like, I consult for your company, whether you like it or not. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because that's that's, an interesting way to put it. Because I'm very kind of meta in the way where like I'm reporting on the industry. I'm also reporting about things in the industry. You know, I'm inside it ancillary and on the orbits and, you know. And you can use a word like paradigm in a sentence and not a lot of people in the industry can do that. <laughs> Can't spell it for shit though. Uh, um, there's a there's a G in there, there's right? There's a G in there somewhere. <laughs> it's like lasagna. Paradigm. Paradig- I paradig them. <laughs> I dig them. I dig a pair of them for sure. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's an interesting, interesting perspective. I've seen a lot in this industry in the last nine years of the transition from print to digital. And the operating procedures and the rule book and the etiquette that came with print journalism doesn't necessarily carry over into online journalism. And that's both for the good and for the bad. I think online journalism could benefit from some more rigorous kind of old school values, if you want to call it. But on the flip side, like, like, and and this kind of goes back to like kind of what Lance was saying in his article and my critique would be like, you know, the rules that you're saying, the rules that you're playing by, and the reason why you don't call yourself a journalist is very much because those rules were made back when national news TV was just coming in as a major media player. People were still consuming news through... 24-hour cycle. Well, the 24-hour cycle wasn't even a thing yet. The 24-hour cycle didn't start until really CNN showed up. So it was really just like the nightly news from ABC, CBS, and NBC. You know, and like for an hour a night. Well, that's what I'm talking about. When I say 24 hour cycle, I guess that's what I mean is that 24 hours later, you get the news and then another 24 hours go. You're talking about 24 hours a day. 24-7. No, I I mean the cycle of that, which was from the time of television. Let's call television the, the node where it became a nightly news. Right. So. Well, and even then before that. You know, that was the same cycle that you would see in a newspaper. Oh, got it. You're right. You know, You're right. It, it took at sure. least a day or so before something happened before it was kind of reported yep. on. Yep. And and understand too, so so there's a time component to that, but also understand that like there's a medium component. Not everyone owned TVs in the early days. Yeah, that was sure. a big thing when a family had a TV. Yep. And then obviously now it's morphed where we have houses with multiple TVs. And we have tablets, and we have computers. People were still consuming the news through the radio, print journalism and newspapers was was probably the the largest component of this industry and things were siloed that was the other thing you like you you could only watch one news program at a time it's not like i could watch abc and nbc at the same time i had to pick one because they were on at the same time and i only had one tv to watch it on sure it was the same thing like i only really subscribed to one newspaper i don't subscribe to five so news was very much in a silo and 
those silos were controlled by a handful of companies. Fast forward, you know, however many years you want to call that transition, but fast forward to today, and it's completely different, right? You have 24 news um, second by second, you know, you can go to CNN yeah. and it's constantly going on. You can go to NBC news. You can go to Fox news. Like they have entire channels that are dedicated to just constantly telling you what's going on in the industry or sorry, not the industry, but in the world, you have the advent of online publications like myself that work on a much quicker timetable than the print publications used to. And then you have social media, which is a whole new thing. So understand like we live in a day now where news isn't siloed anymore. It's not controlled by a few organizations. In fact, you have like kind of like the citizen journalism that goes on where, and that's kind of how I got started. I was just an enthusiast that started talking about motorcycles. I wasn't inside the industry. I didn't have a news background. I had a law and a business background. So I, that's how I approach how I, how I do the news or how I would tell a story. And so it's empowering that like, and we, you know, you can see that now with what we call social media influencers. Well, that's really just citizen journalism in a way. Yeah. And we saw one of our friends, um, Letitia Klein, chimed in on kind of her perception of journalism and and how she perceives her her space in this space. If that makes sense. Place in the space. This place in the space. Yeah, that rhymes too. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we consume most of our news now, or we get led to our news now by things like Facebook, by things like Twitter. Uh, we live in a post-fact society where we're not really told what to believe. We more choose out the facts we choose to believe. You know, like if I'm a flat earther, I can go and focus only on news that fits with my flat earther perspective. Or if I'm a, um, a no vaccine person, I can go and find out the channels that will play to my my interest there and we don't really get challenged with our views. So like the way we consume media and the way we consume news has drastically changed. So I think to bring out a rule book or a paradigm or whatever you want to call it, that's truthfully 50 to maybe 70 years old and say that this is the only way that this can be done. This is the correct way is, is going in the face of how much, media has changed from then until now. It's the same thing like looking at, I think in the last show we talked about the transition that the transportation industry is going through. And we talked about, well, if motorcycling wants to stay relevant, it needs to figure out how it's going to fit into the changing landscape of transportation, the movement of people out of the suburbs and into the city, the movement uh, away from cars and motorcycles as recreation to just transportation, the movement of the fact that we probably won't even be driving cars 20, 30 years from now in the sense of like having to get a driver's license and physically piloting the vehicle. We're going to have autonomous vehicles. We're going to have vehicles that communicate with each other and they communicate with the grid. And, you know, like we're looking at like a fundamental sea change in the way we do transportation. Well, we've already done that sea change in media. Our media has completely changed the way, you know, compared to what it was, I don't know, however many years ago. Even us I talking, right? 50 years ago, but it really isn't that long of a time ago. It was no. probably more like 30 years ago. It was and, drastically and different. It's. I think about us having this conversation as media. People are getting information from us, even though I don't really consider it journalism. It is in, in, in some, on some part of the continuum, what you and I are doing right now is journalism, on some part of it, right? Absolutely. Okay. When I started reading about motorcycles, it was monthly magazines. Yeah, that was it. Monthly magazines. I, I digested everything and anything I could 
from 1993 until about 1994, I would say, when I started to get online in my dad's T1 line at, mm-hmm. on campus at Texas A&M. Then I started to dig in, but there was no journalism. It would just be me typing in Ducati 748 and going somewhere and seeing something that was a picture and then finding, you know, trying using using clues that I get from magazines. Then eventually it started to go into daily, whatever, Motorcycle Daily or Motorcycle.com and Superbike Planet. Well, at the time, early, it, early it, was, days it was AMASuperbike.com at that time. Right. Um, no Cycle Adams. News. Then yeah. I started working at motorcycle shops. Then it was weekly. When you work in a motorcycle shop, you got Cycle News. Right. So you'd have the monthly magazines, the weekly tome, which was Cycle News, which where you get the bulk of your, your data, and then online a little bit. And then eventually it just cycled out to the point where I haven't, yeah, and I don't find a need to have any one of those things, even though I I like magazines. They have to be almost fancy. They almost have to be like sideburn or something like that for me to justify owning the paper and having the thing and and being able to hold it, even though I do like it, but I'd rather have a coffee yeah. table book the, than a bunch of magazines. Yeah, the battle cry is print is dead, and I, I say it sometimes too, but when I say it, I think I mean it in the th- terms of the old mentality that came with print is dead. Yeah. I think there is a great business model for print publications to be quarterly. It could even be monthly, but focusing on evergreen content, focus on this is something I'm going to put on my shelf afterwards and not throw out when I'm done. Yep. And I think that's where like the Bonnier publications and the other print magazines have kind of missed the mark because they're still trying to be the news. They're still trying to be the 24-hour cycle. And it's like, guys, like, like I'm telling you as a daily publisher that like social media is going to eat my lunch. So just imagine what it's going to do to you. And I think that's the miss. And I think that's part of two of like what Lance was getting back to in his story, because he does kind of call out Bonnier. And you know, his gripe with them is how they've changed their business model and gotten rid of kind of what was considered to be the divide between editorial and advertisement which I think is a fair critique, but you know, it's also on the same tide too. It's like, well, you know, these are, these print entities are trying to figure out what they are going forward. And I think when you look at motorcyclists going to, was it six or eight uh, publications a year now and they're going to alternate and there's been some talk maybe of cycle world following it and they're going to alternate, you know, they're trying to figure out how does, how does a print magazine continue to have value in this changing media landscape? And I think for me, like, you know, if you can put out a publication that want that you want to put on a shelf and not on, or that you want to put on your shelf and not in your trash, that's the guiding light to to successful print journalism. Yeah, um, but you and, have to and, augment and, that and, with and online storytelling. And you have to augment it online because like you're just never going to beat online in terms of its of its timeliness. And that comes with its own pitfalls. Like you know, and again to kind of reference Lance's story, I think at the end of the day, what what he's harping on is authenticity and the old paradigm of you don't let the, you know, you don't, you pay for your flights, you pay for your meal, you pay for your travel and your expenses and you don't let the, the subject pay for that or whatever. Um, those were rules that were put in place to preserve the authenticity of the author and for the publication. So when they came out and said something was X, they had an ironclad, like we weren't influenced in saying this thing was X. You know, this is just, this is our journalism. And yeah. and it's like that idea of being above the fray. And I think that's what he's trying to get towards. 
And my retort would be, and we see it, you know, in the space where I think there are publications of varying authenticity, let's say. That's the most polite way I will, I will, I'll put that. <laughs> there's there's degrees of authenticity in this space. Yeah, sure. We talked as about there it are as, in every niche and every news the organization. pyramid that you talked about where like like the war correspondent at the pinnacle, the top of the of the pyramid of journalism well, would even, be that. But then if you're looking at it from the the, no, the I, I know what you're saying, but I, I that's not quite the same thing because the war correspondent on side A and the war correspondent sure. on side B probably going to record different things. And that's the thing that gets me. Whereas, you know, you know, you and I get a lot of flack on the podcast for being, you know, Ducatistes and talking about Ducati a lot and yeah. more than we should. And and we both know that we do it too much. Sure. But it's one of those things where I think there's more value in raising my hand saying, yeah, I've got two Ducatis in my garage. I've got a Yamaha and a Husky. I've owned a Honda and a Suzuki in the past as well. These are the brands that I spend my money on. These are the brands that I think are strong. This is what my opinion is. And if you think there's a bias with that, that's fine. But I've raised my hand and say, hey, this is very clear. This, this is, is where here's the lens you're gonna look This through. is where I yep. stand. This is my perspective. And if you have a differing perspective, I challenge you then to come up and, and share your thoughts. And I, you know, when I look a lot in the comment section of AR and I don't moderate that much. I moderate out um, personal attacks, I moderate vulgar language. But I actually really enjoy it when people disagree with something I've written, it, when it's on the merits, when they say like, oh, you know, Jensen, this is your perspective. Well, this is what I think. Great. And that's what A&R is for in a way is so you can voice that perspective. And I've even published stories I didn't agree with, but they were argued well, they were backed up with facts, and they were strong perspective. Like, don't agree with your opinion, but man, do you make a good argument for it? Yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to publish that. That to me, I think is more important in news. And I think that's more important in journalism where it's this idea of like this idea of unbiased reporting or unbiased perspective does not exist. It is a fallacy. If you think that is an achievable goal, I've got bridges in Brooklyn to sell you. It's just, just speaking as someone with a psychology background, it cannot work that way. Even when you're trying to be unbiased, you then create a bias. You know, it's almost like this, this chicken and the egg thing. So let's let's realize that we will always be biased and let's be upfront about our bias instead and say, hey, you're an intelligent human being. You're going to consume this information and understand that it comes with it this certain lens or this certain bias or this certain perspective. I'm going to let you make up your own mind about it rather than trying to be like, this was written completely neutral and I've I've made it completely unbiased and I have stamped out any of my personal opinions <laughs> and yeah. perspectives and experiences to sterilize this this thing through and through and through because you're never going to get it all the way. So now you're just misleading your readers and saying like, Oh, this is sterilized. And it's like, well, it might be 99%, but there's still that 1% in there. And and if you wanted to re read something that was completely sterilized, it would be boring it would as be shit. Boring. It's just the facts. I get it. And you know what? In a lot of cases you do need to hear just the facts, but for what we're doing or what you're doing, um, I don't, don't want to hear they, people are probably not listening to this just for the facts. And if they have decided to continue listening to us over the course of time, it's because they do value our opinion. I appreciate that to all the listeners that do. Fair enough. And I'm glad that you can point it out that, hey, they are listening to us through a filter, just like you could talk about the lens of a 
of a uh, of going into a dealership or going in, or looking at a magazine or like you go into a Ducati dealership and you ask them what they think about a Yamaha, you know they're gonna you got to know that you're getting a uh, getting a, a lens, right? right. That's a different a different thing. So for us, same deal. I would like to think that the people that are listening understand that even with these biases, that we're trying to be uh, at least a little bit egalitarian with the way we look at at least motorcycles. Um, then uh, I'd like that. I think that would be something that I'd want to, I'd, I'd like to go towards, right? I want vehicles to be rad on merit, but if I'm going to make a, you know, a comment on an, on a, uh, an objective relative to subjective part of a bike, I, I want that people to know where I'm coming from. And I think that that's cool. I think we can both do that pretty well. It was interesting listening or talking to a, um, a press person the the other day and we were talking about some launches that I had been on and they're like, you know what? That might not have been the best launch to invite you to because when Jensen Bieler shows up at a press launch, I come as the street. It's asphalt and rubber for a reason, right? I'm a street bike guy. I, yeah. That's how I got my start. Now, since you know moving here to Oregon, I've been getting an off-roading more and adventure bike more and yep. getting a little dirtier, but I'm still a street bike guy and that's why the publication is called what it is. And I'm also a sport bike guy. I like going fast. I like going on track days. Um, That's your focus. We were, you know, we were just joking the other day, like, oh, I get on a Harley. I think I was talking to, well, I was talking to a mutual friend of ours, and they were talking about going on a Harley ride, and you know, he was just scraping floorboards through every turn, and he's like, you know, I just rode it like I was a sport bike because I don't ride bikes like I ride like I would ride, or I don't ride bikes in a way that the Harley was intended to be riding. No. So I'm the same way. We're like, you know, if I'm this is actually going to be the challenge going to that Goldwing launch. Sure. I was like, I'm not the typical Goldwing rider. That's not who I am. I come at it from a sporty perspective. So whatever I write is going to be through that lens. Now, you know, I'm going to obviously try and put myself into like the mindset of, you know, someone that wants to get on these touring bikes, but that's part of what makes asphalt and rubber asphalt and rubber and how it's different from public publication X, Y, or Z is because this is my perspective. So my review is going to be different than their review. Hopefully. Hopefully by design, it should be different. That's where the tragedy is. If you start sterilizing everything out, that's where you start complaining about like, well, all the reviews are the same and they don't really say if the bike's good or bad because it's just, you've sterilized out all the opinion. You've sterilized out all the perception. You've sterilized out all the preference. So you just sit there and start talking about the 1.8 liter, six cylinder, you know, horizontally opposed <laughs> and it makes yeah. 120 horsepower. Yeah, exactly. And it weighs 780 pounds, and there's 23 liters of storage in the side yeah. saddlebag. We had we had this issue come up in the Alta world where one of the marketing people at an, an event would go into the the specs, and our good friend Christian, um, who's the sales person, um, the sales rep, went after after this had to have a talk with a couple people like, hey. Listen, I know that you get it. We're we're an engineering company, and you get all of these specs and facts and figures, and they're fascinating to you. But that's not what's getting people stoked on this thing. And when you mean specs, you don't mean like it's, it weighs this much, it makes this much. Horsepower. Yeah, no, I mean that. It makes it weighs that all the things that you were just listing off in an okay. EOR voice. If you do that, that's fine. If somebody's asking for it, that's when you do it. Hey, how much does it weigh? How fast does the uh, motor spin? But if you want to convey stoke, you've got to talk about other intangible things about how awesome it is to ride the bike. And I, and I, I had never really thought about it cause I'm a tech person. I'll go into the specs 
This is me because I'm not a salesperson. So I, my brain, uh, after having had watched this interaction and realized, oh yeah, you can't do it like that. You can do it with certain people for sure. And I think a lot of people that read your website and listen to this podcast are on the techie side of the continuum. On the, I want to listen to a, a tech uh, debrief more than I want to listen to, you know, sta- sales right. talk. Nitty gritty, like what kind of battery uh, formula are you using? Now? Exactly. Now, right. how are you arranging those in parallel and yeah, series? Exactly. And you, you, we, people want that. I get out. it. But horses for courses, if you're trying to get people stoked out there, you've got to be able to speak the language of sales. And that's a different language than specs and and whatnot. And and, and a, a lot of these magazines need to get that as well. And they find a good, best writers have a balance of both, right? You can't just have Kevin Cameron's. You got Kevin Cameron, who's not just good at listing the specs, but then can also describe all the other things right. really them. well. Yeah. And that's what makes him an excellent writer. And then you got Peter Egan, who can talk about just life in general on motorcycles and make mundane things sound really interesting. And then you have uh, somebody like Don Kinney on the cycle world side, a little bit dry, but he fucking knows, you know, he knows how to ride. So when he's describing a bike, he does it in a very clinical way on some side, and then he gets into the stoke, and then you kind of find that balance. And so the best journalism journalists are like that, I think. See, that's funny, because when I hear you say that, all I hear you talking about really is authenticity. Yeah. And this idea of like, yeah. you know, yeah. these are three journalists who have made a name for themselves and having a certain sort of specialty. Yeah, you're right. Kevin, from having been a tuner and is an engineer level, Peter Egan from having 50, 60 years of motorcycle car experience and engines and of all sorts and shapes and sizes. And somebody like Don Kinney who's been writing about motorcycles probably longer than I've been alive. Literally started the supermoto yep. movement, yep. you know, in deep, the US. Deep, deep in the racing. Yep. Yeah, and, ama- and amazing. So all these characters you need to have, and it's super sad to see entities going away like Sport Rider Magazine. But you know that there's not enough readership for it. There's no reason to print the stuff sucks because you know that there's certain people that that have a voice that you know can get you the information that you need but it's not there's not enough room for it i mean somewhere along the lines like and maybe this is what lance was trying to get to in his story you know we we have kind of lost that that journalistic edge and just the terms of like we're not bringing anything to the table like i look at i'm not going to say i break the most news in the american journalistic realm but i break a lot and I shouldn't be because I'm not a big name print publication with a, with an amazing staff that's been around for 25 years or, or longer. Yeah. You know, I'm just, I'm that's just, the motorcycle I'm just, space. but I'm just some schmo really. Right. Yeah. But that's the space. But that's, but I think that's, that's what was given up. And I think that's what Lance is reacting to where it's like, you know, you don't really see, you don't really see motorcycle publications as the fourth estate that they've used to be considered. And I don't see a lot of publications acting in that way just in terms of what their article mix looks like. And I think that's because, I don't know, I think there's a lot of things going on there, but one of them certainly is the, the change in landscape and how media makes money, the, the, the state of the motorcycle industry in the U S and abroad. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of considerations. It's not necessarily false news either. Um, and that can be part of it. It's false news, you know, on the, I think we've had our fair share of that. I can think of a couple publications that, got into what we would call like yellow journalism where you read the headline and you're like, Oh, I got to click that. And you're like, Oh, that's what, you're, that's what you're talking about. Oh, well there's clickbait. And I guess I don't really consider that necessarily false news. 
But it is, you're right. And there's plenty of clickbait crap well, out there right now. De- yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what your definition of, of fake news would be. Like, you know, is the story just completely made up and to serve some other purpose? Or is it clickbait in the sense of like, hey, I'm going to make you think this story is a bigger deal than it actually is. I mean, there's there's different there's different iterations of it. it is a story that was reported with um, the best of intentions, but you know, gets a fact wrong or gets the story wrong and yeah, has to sure. be corrected. Is yeah. that fake news? I don't think so. No, I, it would be serial bad. Like every time you see an article, you know that it's incendiary in some way, and that they just want you to click on their website and then hopefully click on one of the tangential ads that's on the website so that they can. Get, you're talking about for clickbait. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. But then we get into, I mean, this is this is something that is very real in the motorcycle industry. We get into stories that are literally written by the press officer for that, for that, you know, manufacturer or that company that the story is about. And you're like, yeah. okay, well, you know, I don't know what the definition of that would be, but it certainly isn't authentic. No. And it might not be and there's, false news. And there are there are PR and marketing people on the masthead at some of the publications that are, that are operating right now. And you're and like, isn't Bonnier right now? That's all it is. Well, I'm not going to throw Bonnier under the bus on that, but Bonnier definitely has as a part of the motorcycle group, a marketing arm that is actively going out and recruiting brands to do press launches for, and to help with their marketing materials and to do video and photo and connecting them with, you know, media publications. Oh, by the way, we own three of them. Well, actually, they yeah, own more because saying. there's some of the dirt side. It all seems like it's bought and sold, and it's well, all one. And, and I think that's that's you know that was one of the criticisms that, that Lance brought out in his article. That's why he names Bonnier in Pacific specifically because the motorcycle group inside Bonnier is branching out from beyond just you know the the major print titles that they own and into these other things. In fact, they're going out right now and trying to represent motorcycle racers in Moto America. And people may not know this, but the Bonnier group runs the Moto America website, which is why you see a lot of Bonnier journalists publishing on there and vice versa. Um, and it's not always evil. Like I know so many people that are involved with this and I know they're good people. So it's not like I, I think everybody that's involved sucks or is beholden, but it is a, it is a get, bit of a gut check when you think of what Bonnier's doing and having worked at an OEM that worked with Bonnier or knowing people that, are part of Bonnier that work with the OEM and how deeply, I mean, it's just incestuous. So for me, that kind of, kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies for, from a journalistic standpoint, from the manufacturer standpoint, none of them are doing anything wrong. They're just the path of least resistance to well, get their product out in people's faces. I can't say, I know that you took exception with the, somebody writing an article as a press officer and getting it published and you look at the evil on both sides where I'm like, oh no, the only evil would be on the journalist on the on the magazine side for letting that get printed, not the, for the manufacturer that's like, hell yeah, you're gonna let me do that? Do it right on. You know, and I think this is where Lance and I agree. I think the journalists or the publications that allow that, you know, that's a cardinal sin. That's yeah. one of the old school lines that oh, I yeah, think that horrible. shouldn't be being crossed. Nope, they shouldn't allow to do it. But on the flip side, I blame the OEMs that do it as well. And this is where I think you give them a pass, but I blame them because it's like, you have to understand that this is not your long-term best interest by commandeering motorcycle publications and treating them as, you know, your outsourced marketing department. This is going to be something that bites you in the ass later down the line and whatever short-term gain that you make by having that, your press officer, you know, write a story for the the publication and it's all glowing and tells how great your brand is. 
whatever that gets you in sales next month is going to be outweighed by the detriment that you're causing in the industry as a whole. Cause that's, what's going to collapse the whole system really. And that's when, that's when like people get on asphalt and rubber and they say, Oh, you know, print is dead and this is bought and paid for and there's bias everywhere. And this is this and this where it's like, well, you're going to muddy the water so bad that even independent publishers who maybe have, you know, who haven't been turned or swayed or, or biased beyond their own normal bias, you know, everyone's just going to discount everything they say. Um, and, then, and that's the same thing that I, I see with, with the social media influencers or, or a lot of them where you just look at them and you're like, not a lot of experience, a lot of voice, and you're saying some really dangerous things like, like the Dorito chip thing that's going on right now. Have you seen this? Mm-hmm. It's like the big new trend is like, you got to get your body positioned in a certain way that your knee looks like a Dorito chip when you drag knee. It's like max, it's like minimum lean, maximum off the body, hanging off, knee dragging. And like, that's like supposed really? to be like this, like attainable goal. Like that's the sign of a good rider. And I just look at them just like, what the fuck are you people doing? But inexperienced people that don't know any better and they're getting influenced by these people with massive followings are eating it up. And you're just like, huh? Okay. No pun intended. Yeah. But I like Cool Ranch Doritos. They're good. You would like Cool Ranch. <laughs> In the end, it's a victory for no one. It's, it's, yeah, it's a bad deal. It's a bad deal for sure. And, um, you know, it's interesting to see that that brand didn't do so well. <laughs> huh? What? Doritos? Oh, I think they do great. I'm, I can't wait to go buy a, a bag when I, I'm on my way home. A little cool ranch. So interesting, interesting times in the media landscape. But yeah, it was, it was a definitely a, a thought provoking article. There's a lot of things going on behind the scenes right now in the motorcycle industry that I think are um, interesting. And hopefully we'll talk about them a little bit more on the show. Yeah, for sure. I think though, for now, we got to talk about putting kickstands up. Kickstands are the most pressing topic in the motorcycle industry. They are right pressing. Now. They press against the concrete. They do, yeah. The gravitas that they 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 bring—it's <laughs> like focused onto like just one little point. Yeah, inch by inch, all the all the power, all the weight. All right, Quinn. Good talk. See you out there. All right, later. I got I got that actually it was pretty good. <laughs> Stupid joke Walcott. <laughs> I edited twenty minutes out of that show. Yeah. Twenty yeah, minutes. Th- thank you for that. <laughs> oh man. Stupid Chukwalaka, bro. <laughs> uh, that could be the mascot. That's the two enthusiasts. <laughs> That's the two enthusiast mascot. <laughs> All right. Oh, let's get fired up. Fired up, Quentin. Woo! Yeah. Podcast. Oh, and you're, yeah. you, you went to the do. I'm doing it up. Uh, December 13th, Q and I will be in San Francisco doing a live show. Is this going to happen? Is this podcast going to be out by that time? God willing. If not, the week after, we're going to have to stay there an extra week or two just to make sure. <laughs> All right. So if you're listening to this and it's already past December 13th. My commitment to you, this this podcast comes out before the live show. Okay. Very good. Maybe like a minute before. <laughs> it might be but like, damn it, it'll come it'll out happen. before. All right. Fair enough. <laughs>